whether it's a billion dollars or whether it's 700 million or whatever it is, it's like, you're going to have a fantastic journey along the way. It's going to guarantee that you don't follow a normal path, a thousand millions, right? A billion dollars. That's something that you, you have to follow a special journey to get there. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What up, party people? It's your boy, Orange Mocha Frappuccino, a.k.a. Rabbi Cantlose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I asked the question, who is John Arrow? To me, he's the next Elon Musk. He's a good friend of mine. He lives in Austin, Texas. You've probably never heard of him. But the guy has sold his company before he's 26 for nearly nine figures. He is a chairman of a huge company called Mutual Mobile. He wants to travel to space. He's building things with the word called haptics. I have no idea what that word means. And he's super humble about all of it. In today's episode, we're going to explore the future and how John plans on making a billion dollars and what the future actually looks like with some things I've never heard before, like haptics, blind people seeing, and more. We talk about how he also made $1,000 a day in high school and creating an amazing life for yourself. I'm really excited for you to hear the show. Enjoy. Do you think like this AirPod is the next big platform? I mean, think about it. You could have basically a super smart assistant with you at all times. And if you have like a camera in the room or something, you're playing somebody chess, right? (laughs) I mean, this is literal bonafide superpower. I never thought of it like that. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of people are like, oh, these are cool headphones. How do you start framing things like that? Like, how do you start thinking about those kind of like issues or like futures? I think I go really far into the future of what I want and then kind of try to think about what the stepping stones are going back from that. What things have that been? I know that I want a computer in my brain. <laughs> I want my <laughs> sentience being in the computer, right? Yeah. So what would be logical, progressive, bite-sized chunks to get there? And, and this is a step in the right direction. You know, it's probably a lot of it comes from being around those other types of people who talk about it all the time. I'm a huge Kurzweil fan. Okay. And I know unequivocally that we're going to live forever, that we can take a human consciousness and put it into a computer. And so I'm tantalized with that just because of, you know, rejecting my own mortality that I want to be able to be part of that revolution, right? And it's so limiting right now, if you think about just the way that our biology works, we rely on these chemical reactions that have evolved efficiently over millions and millions of years. But now that we're in this technological revolution, there's gotta be better ways to do it. Like Elon Musk's new company, Neuralink, that's it. That's a great example of something that I could get super passionate about. What is it about? It's about creating that interface between the chemical reactions in your brain, the synapses firing, and a computer of some sort. So you could use potentially thought to control a computer as opposed to voice or your hand on a mouse. So just your brain as it processes and goes through like subconscious or... Yeah, the whole concept being that once you get that link and then you kind of can get the intelligence of a computer and the intelligence of a person. Do you ever get scared? Like I was talking about this with Neville yesterday and I was thinking about how and maybe this is me not being as optimistic, but I was like, man, it'd be nice to be older to some extent. Mm-hmm. This stuff is actually seems scary to me, like potentially scary, just like how fast things are going to be evolving. And like, I don't know where like human civilization is going to go and like, who's going to get left behind, who's going to be leading it. And then I was like, well, do you either want to be watching on the sidelines now, or do you need to go in and play and then help lead that? That's a great point. I mean, the really potentially scary issue we're going to be faced with really soon is if you look at jobs in the United States, the number one job for men is driver right? Either taxi cab or, you know, Uber or transport, some type of truck driver. Even USPS is a driver, FedEx, UPS. For men, that is the most common job in the United States. And for, and for women, it's secretary or receptionist of some sort. 
in really? the United States. Okay. And now both of those jobs are going to become under clear and present danger from autonomous cars, self-driving cars, right? Those, those jobs are going to win in eight years, max, I'd say. Same thing with secretary receptionists. That's under fire from artificial intelligence, machine learning. So those things are just about to go become eradicated. And we're going to be faced with that. Okay, now a computer took my job. It's going to be the common thing. I think everybody benefits from that. But in the short term, there's going to be some growing pains. You go that a little further out, you and I, what do we do? We come up with cool business ideas and we execute them. Right now, we have an edge. However, I would think computers soon will be the next people innovating there, right? You give a computer this prime directive to go out and create money and to create a company. If you give it a little bit of intelligence, it's going to be way better than us at it. It doesn't seem too Im- implausible. It's mm-hmm. funny as like I was talking to people and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I was looking at a bookshelf and I was like, man, books are kind of outdated, printing all this paper, wasting all these trees. Mm-hmm. Like, what if you just have a hologram of them? Mm-hmm. And I mentioned it to some friends. They're like, yeah, that's not that impressive anymore. No, like we can see that already. And I was like, yeah, I guess a lot of these things were like, there are a lot of people's jobs that are going to be changing. I think one thing that you said, which I think is a good point is like, well, you can either watch it or I'm going to go and like, see how I can make it happen and be a part of it. Totally. Right. So for you as AirPods, what other kind of things are the neural link? Yeah. I like haptics a lot. I think haptics What's makes that? sense. Haptics are those fancy word for those vibrations that touch your skin on your Apple watch. I don't know why they don't just call them vibrations. Okay. And what's amazing about this is our brain can interpret those in the same way that we interpret visual stimuli. Okay. So if you think about the way a bat works, it uses echolocation to see itself. Our kind of visual cortex is one way that we take in information about the world. On sensitive parts of the body, like the wrist or even the tongue, you can take in these complex vibrations and form a visual picture of the world. And so one of the things that we're experimenting with now is reading text messages using haptic control. So you get this series of vibrations, almost like Braille, and you wouldn't even need to look at your phone. What? You would learn that language and you would just read it. You wouldn't even have to think about the letters. You would see it in your head how you see a word. Oh my God. That's interesting. And the crazy thing about this is the fidelity is high enough of this channel. Text is breaking the surface. You could actually do pictures and images and movies and see it in the same way that we see with our eyes. Just because you feel the certain type of image? You feel it. It's what data is on Star Trek. It's a neural net. So it's one of those things we can't exactly explain why it works, but you'd say whether it's correct or wrong enough times and you develop it naturally. So there's blind people right now from an accessibility system that wear the sensor on their tongue and they have a camera attached to their head and they can see in black and white the world around them. How? Because you don't need your eyes to take in that information. You can take it in through vibrations. When you put it on them for the first few days, it's just nothing. It's just these random sensitive taps. And then over time it progresses. Before you know it, they can navigate a room and they can play tic-tac-toe with their kids. They can see. Yeah, in every sense of the word even though they don't have eyes or they're, they're no longer functioning. What are you concerned about with the future? You know, I'm a devout optimist. So I don't have too many. I mean, the biggest thing that I, on a personal note that I'm concerned with is that not triaging the right opportunities and picking the best ones that, you know, most interesting to me. Cause I think there's going to be this Cambrian expansion where a lot of these things are going to happen in a short amount of time. And it's tempting to get so excited about one that you miss out on another. Okay. So maybe you're so excited about autonomous cars, self-driving cars that you miss out on this whole sentience of computer thing, where you miss out on, I don't know, virtual reality. You got to think, pick a few that intersect to avoid that. So how do you pick? Because you were saying earlier, you want to make a billion dollars by your 40. How old are you now? Just turned 30 last week. Nice, dude. Got a cool decade. A decade's a lot. You could do a fucking lot in a decade. Yeah. Why did you choose that number as your goal? I chose it because I think it's one of those things that if you make decisions 
in the auspices of that, you're going to encounter an interesting journey, right? Ultimately, it's not about the money. I mean, I don't think you find many people who have, you know, $700 million, who if they had that extra $300 million, they would be incrementally happy, right? This is diminishing marginal utility. <laughs> I just need the 300. <laughs> but if you died at 990, would you be pissed? Do you feel like? I'd be a little bit pissed. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd let you borrow 10. If I had 10, I'd let you borrow <laughs> oh, that's, I'm going to take No, we're not going to die. I think that's what's amazing is that on that journey, right, we're probably going to discover things like living forever and, and other cool technologies. And I want to be part of that journey, right? And so if you set a goal, whether it's a billion dollars or whether it's 700 million or whatever it is, it's like you're going to have a fantastic journey along the way. It's going to guarantee that you don't follow a normal path. A thousand millions, right? A billion dollars. That's something that you, you have to follow a special journey to get there. And that's what I care about. Where does this come from? And then like, when do you make time to think about your journey? Yeah, you know, I was kind of, my last day of 29, I was kind of interrogating some of my, my long held beliefs. That's the one that came up. Why do I kind of strive for something unconventional? And the best answer I can give you, um, one, when I was really little, I thought I was an alien. I thought I was from outer space. I don't know why, <laughs> what but made I did. You think that? For, I'm not sure. I was like thinking that I was some type of alien with special powers. Okay. Do you remember what kind of powers you had? I don't know. I think I had mind reading. Did you ever have the one where I always thought I could change the lights at stoplights? Yes, I did. <laughs> I was always like, and it's going to be green. <laughs> so you thought you're an alien. And what was the belief you were challenging? Not that you're not an alien. Well, anymore. that was a challenge in that belief. That belief I hopefully. You know, <laughs> you're still an alien. It was basically this thought process of being in school really, really young, just realizing that I didn't like that conventional path. Didn't want to have to kind of rely on others to do what I wanted to do in life, right? I mean, it's just like, I didn't think about it this way when I was in elementary school, probably middle school, but this idea of trading the best years of your life, nine to five for something, for a salary, or just being kind of trapped in a cycle where you're always at the mercy of somebody else making a decision just seemed incredibly unappealing to me. I kind of developed a deep resignation with anything that was normal. And I knew that like I would have in high school, one of my first businesses, I said, okay, you know, as soon as I get to a thousand dollars a day in revenue, I'm going to drop out of high school. That was like, that was a billion dollars when I was 16. It's like, get to a thousand dollars a day. You don't need high school and college. And that was like what I use as the motivation. And oftentimes what happens when we set those goals for ourselves, there's somewhat of a mirage, you know, got to that point and it's like, okay, well, but it provided a great path, a great journey along the way that I had a profoundly different high school experience than if I had just been focusing on getting into college and getting an internship or something like that. So it sounds like one of the lessons or things to take away is like, you said just like audaciously big goals. Yeah, I'm going to try to do something crazy. And by setting something crazy, it kind of leads you on the most interesting type of journey versus like, hey, you know, I'll try to make a million dollars, which you're doing smaller things and the journey is, becomes less interesting for you. Yeah, I think what it's, it's not even about it. Because I'm, I'd like to say that that's the main reason why, but I think it's to avoid a form of paralysis where every day there's all of these different decisions to make constantly. And it's unclear which is the best path to go down unless you have this really big goal that you can kind of interrogate. Is this going to take me closer to this goal further or is it neutral, right? Because there's just so many different decisions. And unless you have one, it really can only be one, I think, in the back of your head. You're not going to know what decisions to make. And you're just kind of going to use that whole day in some hedonistic or path of least resistance manner. And you're going to be like, shit, I wasted a whole day. As opposed to if you have that big goal, it's easy. Yes, I want to get closer to it. What's an example of that? I think a great one is, let's look at working out. Right? During the day, we know it will make us happy. We know it's something that we should do. 
whenever you're allocating time to working out, though, it's competing against a tranche of other time. So really what I do is I say, okay, well, I have this priority for the day, showing you a list of goals on my phone and, and different notes. And I make sure that I accomplish that before I do the things that are more incremental and less directively going to impact that goal that I was talking about. How do you think people should think about their goals? I think it's a deeply intuitive process. The reason we spend money or the reason we allocate time is either to increase happiness or reduce stress and sadness. You're either making it to maximize happiness or you're making it to minimize sadness. That's the reason we make decisions. Like if you boil them down to the core constituents. And so for my own personal way I do it is like, what do I want to achieve on a deep level? What's the number one thing that matters more than anything else, right? And family, friends, kind of realizing your full potential, those things are all up there. If you think about it in that light, it becomes a lot easier to miss staying out until, you know, 3 a.m. or something. And so you chose the billion and you think choosing the bigger goal kind of helps you create more interesting journeys or how did you exactly phrase it? Yeah, because it makes it your current way of operating like a thousand millions, right? If you're going to do it in a year, it'd be 2.7 million a day. And it's just like it forces you to think about your process in an order of magnitude different light. What's worked to get us where we are today is not going to work if you increase it by an order of magnitude. It's going to require a level of more abstraction and leverage doesn't necessarily mean it will be an order of magnitude more difficult. I don't think it is. That's the cool thing about it. But it will require a different process. I don't think it's 10 times more difficult to make a billion dollars than it is $100 million. I don't think it's 10 times more difficult to make a billion dollars than it is even $10 million. I think it might be two or three times. That's why it's a different process. It's rather than some type of superlative of just doing more or better or faster. Yeah. How are you thinking you're going to do it? It's a great question. I think it's a blend. I mean, it's, it definitely requires diversity of time, process, people. I'm still very much in this phase where I'm learning. I love the conversations that, that you and I have. Every time I leave after a conversation, like there's like 10 ideas here. There's, you know, 20 other people that I want to meet that you mentioned. So I think being even more open to that is going to be critical. And maybe that's something that happens for the first kind of two to three years into this journey. And then the remainder of the time is spent way more kind of on deploying and on making the critical decisions to get there. I do wonder with this because you have like you have like these like futuristic like AirPods are going to be like these game changers and haptics of touch is going to be a big game changer. And you even you built an iWatch charging wrist strap, right, which got banned. Did it get banned? Apple blocked it. Yeah. Still ongoing. There may be an update there soon. I am curious about what stuff has been too small for you because you were saying like, well, a lot of these are choices. And now that you're looking bigger, you're going to do bigger choices. I almost wonder if that creates paralysis where you're like, this isn't big enough and this isn't big enough and nothing is big enough. Because yeah. like an Apple wristband watch for the iWatch, you made a wristband that could charge it, right? It's like, I wouldn't think that helps you get to the billion. Yeah. So that was a great example of that by itself wasn't, but the kind of the roadmap for that product. And it's still a roadmap of ours is that I know I want to do things with biology and technology coalescing. That's a huge, huge kind of core premise of mine. And I think that helps for the billion dollar goal. If you have technology inside of us, if you can put a chip inside of us that gives us a special ability, that's amazing, right? If you have a contact lens that lets you see infrared radiation or through walls or have a HUD, that's amazing. What's that? Um, heads up display. So imagine you're walking around, you get to see people's names as you walk by them and information about them, right? That would be pretty cool. Now, in order to do a company like that, you probably would have to, you know, raise two or $300 million to get there. And so my thought with Reserve Strap, which is the company that you're referencing is, this was a great profitable way to do basically these stepping stones to getting to more and more intimate pieces of technology that started to 
have something to do with our biology. So I guess I was wondering, like, how do you balance like capitalism making money parts with also like, well, what I really want to do is like this crazy future shit. So VR, virtual reality is growing faster than us for mobile. If you look at virtual reality, we did not have a VR business a year ago, and we will already do $10 million in just VR revenue this year, which is kind of insane. Zero in one year. Close to it. Now, what's amazing to me, and this is kind of the only piece of advice that I'll give on, on these new type of technologies, is try to win at every stage. There shouldn't be these huge kind of chasms or leaps of faith where you don't know if something's going to work or if you're going to lose money and time on it. So basically structuring deals and arrangements where you win at the very beginning, you win a little bit more in the middle, and you have a huge win at the end versus the standard operating procedure that we see for many startups and even new business units is they say, oh, we need to invest tons and tons of time and capital for the first 18 months, and then we'll start to see a return. SEO is a great example. Well, you need to put in all this time and effort, and then you'll get a return. I think there's ways generally to structure things so that you're winning from kind of day one or day two, and that it's a big warning sign in my book. I don't know how to operate if you don't, where you have to wait a year and see. That's just something that causes me anxiety. How does that apply to Mutual Bowl? It applies that like if we're going to go and make an investment, whether it's our own money or it's our customers' money, we say, how can we be sure that in 24 hours time, we're going to know if we're on the right path? I mean, we work with some pretty large budgets sometimes, for, especially for things like Internet of Things, which has been around part of our business for the last four years. Yeah, if a customer is going to sink $50 million of their own money into something, we're, we want to know very early on, are they going to get a good positive return? Because it's not in our business just to go and take customers' money and hope it works out. Right, we're going to lose that customer if it doesn't have a PL effect on their business. So we want to make sure that if they put in a dollar with us, they're going to get at least that dollar back and hopefully an order of magnitude back on that dollar. And so it requires being creative and structuring these mini projects and these tests to see, is this going to work? And then be willing to say, no, this isn't going to work and throw it out rather than throwing more time and money into it, hoping that it will. I mean, Concord, the airplane is a great example of this. This is this passenger jet it flew faster than sound. You could take off in Paris and land in New York before you took off. Like literal time travel because of the time zones it traveled so fast. And this plane never made a dollar. Countries just kept throwing more and more money into it because it seemed like a good idea. And it was completely unviable. It kind of almost threatened to bankrupt France, I think, at some point. Eventually, they threw the plug on it, but they should have done that from day one. They knew this thing wasn't going to work. How they know? Because if you ran any type of financial models, they knew the price of jet fuel and the demand for tickets. They should have known that. It's like Challenger, Challenger, the spaceship, right? Before they launched that spaceship, if they looked at the data they already had, they would know that thing would explode 100% of the time based on the temperatures that they were launching with in the O-ring seals. So you think more people should do a little modeling or try to validate stuff really quickly? Like, is this going to be viable right before you even waste money and a bunch of time on it? Exactly. Otherwise, it's laziness. And if you were a physician doing it, it would be called malpractice, right? And we let people do that. We don't, it's funny, if like a physician tries to operate on somebody with on like a lung or something and doesn't check which lung it should be, they would be charged with malpractice, right? They might go to jail. But if a startup goes and invests LP or VC's money or something and they didn't check something, yeah, try again. It's a, it becomes a medium blog post. Yeah, <laughs> right? I mean, so I think like instilling that like medical level of, of kind of certainty is a virtue. Can you walk me through a few of the things you've started? Yeah, let me talk about one that I'm not sure yet on. No, you know, I've talked a little bit about virtual reality. Okay. I think this is going to be bigger than the internet. One of the things that I never thought I would do in my entire life is open a restaurant or a bar. It just seems like the stereotypical thing to do. You know, you, people from technology go and they try to enter hospitality, which is 
a really hard thing. This changed in the last six months, though, because I want to open up a bar or a restaurant. It will eventually be a restaurant. It will start as a bar because it's easier for drinks. In virtual reality, there is no physical storefront. You put on your headset. You get to go to this amazing location, interact with people from all around the world. And using services like Seamless and Postmates and Favor, you can order off of a menu, have that food delivered, and share a meal with somebody in Hong Kong. Or if you got you know, a sibling living in New York, you can sit down and have an experience with them. You want to go out and experience nightlife, you can go to the bar and buy that cute blonde to drink, even though she might be in Australia. That's pretty wild. Oh, and so how do you go about exploring this? Right, Because you have a day job, you're running a, a big company. Do you find someone to go run it? Do you just start building it? Like, what's the process? It's you go through? vital to do the first part of it yourself. It's so tempting to want to hand off something and delegate it early on. Like, it's something I wrestle with. And every time I delegate it before I flesh out what the idea is, it immediately just ends up violating that rule of winning at every stage because you're turning it into an immediate cost center without a clear path of revenue. So, I've been pretty hands on in this. And kind of the first thing is just trying out different venues. So, I like I have my Samsung gear and my HTC Vive, and I have a venue for this bar restaurant right now. And I like learned, I forced myself to understand how you can do things in VR and how you can make them, even though I have just enough CS knowledge to be dangerous. I was, I've been able to kind of learn this along the way. And yeah, at some point I want to hand it off as soon as possible, but it's not at that stage. It's still very much in the experimental stage. I'm hoping, you know, in a month or so, you and I can grab a beer in VR. It's funny, as you were saying that, I'm sure everyone who's listening is thinking about it too. I was thinking about my brother. He's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I see him once every quarter, but if I could see him every Friday night or on like Tuesday night, I'd be like, hey, why don't you like, if you're just working at home, I'll work next to you right. on my home and I'll be on my laptop and we can hang out. And then you don't have to travel or worry about safety or worry about costs, or worry about time. I mean, think about spaces we go to every day, an office space. What if you could work within VR, right? You kind of eliminate that expense. You can hire employees from wherever. Yes. This is why it's going to be bigger than the internet. It's going to make the world, right now you can get anywhere in the world in 18 hours on an airplane. It's going to be, you can get anywhere in the world and, you know, as long as it takes to put your headset on. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be amazing. So for everyone who's listening and for myself, it's like, you ever, you've read Anne Rand, I'm guessing? Or seen oh, yeah, everything. Uh, I really like her stuff too. And like, there's this, the line, who is John Galt? And so I was thinking about that last night and I was like, who is John Arrow? Ooh, <laughs> that made my week. This, yeah. You know, I've gotten to know you more and more over the years, which I enjoy and I appreciate. And it's like, you fly planes. I don't know if you still have your boat. You're like Jacques Cousteau, kind of like a modern internet nerdy slash adventurer. Who is John Arrow? I used to think that uh, like growing up that yeah, you needed this real kind of rigid self, I don't know, perspective on who you are. And now I've become a lot more, last several years, dynamic and flexible on, on that is. Because I realized I was missing out on experiences by saying, you know, this is something that I want to do or this is something that I don't want to do. So I've been kind of more open to reevaluating that question. I mean, if I had to like kind of sum it up in one word, it would be probably contrarian. Just do not like the paths that are out there right now. For some reason, I have an aversion that isn't completely logical to them. It's interesting, as you were saying earlier too, at, at 30, you started just reevaluating some of your assumptions. Mm -hmm. Like, well, what was that like? It's liberating because for some reason, like we have these things that we don't interrogate. We just operate. We know that we don't like Brussels sprouts, right? Or we know that we don't like some place in the world, like a cruise. Great example is cruise. I used to think I would hate cruises. I don't know why. You know, I like being in command of a vessel. <laughs> then I realized I love them. You went on a cruise? I went on the summit at sea for the last uh, two years. And I was like, this is awesome. And I've taken another cruise since then, separate from it. They're like, great. You get so much work done. People bring you food. You can work out whenever you want to. You're always in transit. 
unless I had gone through that process to interrogate a deeply held belief that I had for no reason, yeah, I would have never had that. So it's like, what are other things? And do you make time and just start thinking about that? Yeah, I need, need to make it more deliberate right now. It kind of seems to be just serendipitous when that thought happens. Like you're in the shower or jogging or something and you think about it. Mm-hmm. I think also the self-identity one is interesting where I think we do define ourselves rigidly. And then like when anything contradicts that, I don't know, at least for myself, I feel like I'm very hard on myself. Like, oh, this is not true to this, the person that you're supposed to be. And I'm like, well, no, this is who I am too. Because there's really no downside. I mean, it's not like you're going to destroy your mental psyche, at least challenging it, right? <laughs> yeah. You might find something pretty amazing. I think it's great. It's like, it's not that about thinking big just to make more money or make things bigger, right? Like, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but it's like, live an interesting life, right? And then what things will help enable that? One thing you were saying earlier, I wanted to make sure I don't forget, how'd you make a thousand a day in, in high school? And I'm trying to think what the initial catalyst for th- was for this. I was always interested in selling things online and the whole dot-com boom and bust that happened in Austin. One of the memories that I have early on in, in high school, freshman year, was I was in honors algebra and I like, failed the first math test or something. It's like really bad to do, I think. And I was like, shit, I need to figure out another option. Okay. Right. And that was this huge catalyst to kind of figure out things on my own. And rather than putting that energy into learning algebra, which I eventually did anyways, I like put it into a business ideas. And so one of my earliest things I noticed was that there were a lot of parents who didn't know what this AOL instant messenger thing was. Okay. And I found it you know, kind of really fascinating because I got it so intuitively. And my mom, who's a psychotherapist, would tell me these stories about who works primarily with kids about how kids would be talking with someone online and they would meet somebody that um, you know, was a child molester or something to that effect. And she would deal with these clients, like parents would bring in their kids and it kind of put two ideas together. Like, I understand this world. There's this clear and present danger risk. There's these message boards out there where um, people are essentially, you know, asking for help on how to keep their kids safe online. So I just made a really kind of simple ebook at first talking about like, how to protect your kids online. Didn't really know what would do with it other than there were people on this message boards. And I put up a PayPal buy now button for $5 on a GeoCities website. And before I knew it, I was you know, selling a few of them a day. I'm like, okay, this is cool. I'm making like 30 bucks a day, not doing anything. And I'd hear from these parents, and you know, this is helpful, but I need something more proactive. So I took, eventually I took all of my profits from this ebook, which was all profit, right? There wasn't any employees or anything like that. Just an ebook. I put it into getting a piece of software made using one of the rent-a-coders or freelancer websites that would let parents monitor what their kids were doing online. Okay. So basically this kind of surveillance software keylogger type thing, right? I went back to the initial list of people who bought this and this was like 2001. And before I know it, yeah, they're buying it for 50 bucks a copy. And I was like, well, this is cool. So I went back to the same message boards and did it again and again. And then I was able to take some of those profits. This is when it was overture search marketing. So we're going way back now. Yeah. By the overture ads, then Google AdWords started becoming more prolific, putting on Google AdWords. And before I knew it, there was nobody else bidding on these words. I basically had that kind of whole market of keeping your kids safe online. And then I ended up having executives from companies saying, we need to watch what our employees are doing too. And kind of took that and ended up building out a suite of more software. Did you build it or you had these freelancers? I had these freelancers built. I had a whole team in Romania working for me at one time in Russia and India. And, and you were what, 15? I think 15 or 16 then. Okay. And so what did your friends think of you in high school at that point? It's funny. I definitely kind of moved more into that world of being consumed by this. Some of my friends who I did talk to about it, you know, were just like amazed by it so much so that they started their own businesses. Up. And it's not like I helped them or anything. They just realized that, hey, if 
this is possible. John did it. I'm going to try it. And it was so cool to see. It made me think about how as soon as the telephone was invented or Morse code or something, there were like eight other people that invented it just because they knew it was possible. It's like, that's a powerful thing. Yeah. It's something that stayed with me ever since. Because once we know something's possible, then it's easy. Then it's like the easy part is executing totally. in many ways, right? So I try to imagine in the future, okay, we're going to have flying cars, right? We're going to be able to live forever. We're going to have some chip in our brain that lets us read mind. Just imagine that's possible. Somebody's going to do it. Now figure out how they did it. That's powerful. That's really powerful. This is possible. All right. How can I make that the reality? Right. So your friends kind of started copying some of your, not copying you. Not copying, doing different things. Um, one, one person was super into sports and made like a pick predictor, an NBA pick predictor, he called okay. it for figuring out who's going to win a basketball game and started selling that on PayPal. And uh, yeah. Were you kind of like isolated in, in high school at all? Because it seems like a lot of these businesses, you'd be alone a lot of the time. I mean, it was definitely my priority. I wouldn't call it isolated. However, everything else took a second and third seat to what I was doing in the business world. That's what brought me the most kind of excitement. Yeah. And I mean, I just, I didn't see a, a different path that I wanted to take. It was exciting. I mean, it was like, whoa, you know, this is right after the dot-com bust. I'm not trying to raise money. I don't even know how to do that yet. I'm just like, you're making good money, in. making money and like almost no costs. And, and so how did that evolve? Um, it evolved into kind of you know, a suite of different products and then got into the affiliate marketing and, and seeing, you know, other ancillary opportunities. And they were selling your product or yours? Both, both. So did a lot with that. Um, and about, I would say 2003, 2004, I saw some interesting opportunities in kind of the payment space. And so I created my first basically PayPal competitor and that failed, but I learned a lot from it. What was that called? It was called Fusion Pay. Oh, and so with the whole key logging thing, did you sell it? What ended up happening with it? It got to the point, I mean, basically it ran for well over a decade. It was something that eventually, just from a time standpoint, I had a whole team running it, so I would, was not necessary at all. They kept growing it. And then I guess the turning point for it was when the iPhone was announced in 2007, it shipped in 2008, the App Store went live in 2009. That's when we started Mutual Mobile. It became just such a priority on this opportunity that I saw that a couple of years into it, I'm like, okay. AdWords had become way more competitive on that front. Because in a profitable space, in a competitive space, profits always go to zero. And so it wasn't an interesting business anymore for economic reasons and because of this much larger opportunity that I saw. I felt like I had reached a local maximum where I'd climbed to this mountain peak and any step I took was a step down. And there were these peaks in the distance that if I wanted to get to them, I had to basically kind of completely silo that business and focus on this next revolution that was mobile. Between that, you started the PayPal thing. What, what was the story there? Yeah, I just was super dissatisfied with PayPal, as many people were, especially when I was 17. They didn't even want me there because you had to be 18 to use it. Had some issues with them and learned a lot, but shut that down. There's basically massive kind of money laundering that people tried to do through it. This is before blockchain or any of that. So I was using ACH rather than credit cards to let people fund through their bank account. You know, I kind of ate my own dog food on it. It worked for us, but just became a headache to run. Like I would get as a 17 year old, these checks in the mail, people trying to fund their account for like $200,000. I just tear them up. I know that they were completely fraudulent, right? They're trying oh, really? to launder money through it. And so shut that down. Then my next failed business, I have tons of, I mean, really for every success, there's like 12 failed ones, right? And I had this advertising company called Expo Active, which was before AdSense. And it would allow you to basically buy ad space on people's websites. And that worked really well for a while. And then I kind of felt the whole click fraud. Uh, oh, really? And that just became a massive, massive headache. Just people clicking on your ads that were just running the websites or their network or whatever? Yeah. And it just became really, really difficult as a 17-year-old to contend with. 
there's real money in people's accounts. And I was trying to decide which publishers should get paid and which shouldn't. And the servers at that time were pretty expensive. Yeah, you had to buy your own. It was no AWS. Yeah, I was spending like, I don't know, like 10000 a month on servers. And it was just like, shit, this is not a fun business. And luckily, as, you know, as I kind of started to see that next wave, I realized what would be fun. And that's where kind of mobile started coming into play. One thing that just made me, made me sort of reflecting on is just like, how do you think parents should raise their kid? And mm. I think about that because if psychoanalyst has got to be an interesting mother. It's like, well, why did you like that toothpaste, John? I'm like, I don't know. I just fucking like Colgate. I like Colgate or Crest 3D. So, I mean, like, how did your parents raise you? And like, how, how do you think you want to raise kids, assuming you, if you want sure. to have kids? That's a great question. Something that I've been thinking more about. I mean, I came from an amazing family. I have awesome parents. If I had someone up, like, it's a relentlessly supportive of whatever you want to do, coupled with setting kind of high aspirations. And so... In terms of making that more pragmatic, I'm not sure what that means. I haven't spent enough time steeping on it, but I'd love to definitely ascribe to that. I think there's this danger, right? This kind of, there's this term iatrogenics. I don't know if you've heard of it. Never heard of that. It's when helpers hurt. And you see that with like a lot of celebrity children, right? You see where they have everything put out for them on a silver platter. Or you see that with families who have physicians on the payroll. It's that if you try to minimize encumbrances and difficulties for people, you end up a lot of times doing more damage. And so I'm mindful of that, right? So a great example might be you have a son or a daughter one day, say your daughter, she comes home from school and she's upset because some kid had been making fun of her. You as a parent would feel just deeply anxious for her and upset for her. And you'd want to try to figure out how to make that situation, right? And you might want to intervene, but if you intervene, she's not going to learn that emotional intelligence of how to deal with that situation. And so she's going to be deprived of that experience for the next occasion where you can't help her. It just becomes so reliant on you. You know, she won't become an interesting individual in her own right. How do women fit into your life then? Because I was wondering, it's like, if you're so focused on the work stuff and you've got high aspirations, like, how does that make sense to actually fit them in? Yeah, I think it comes down to whether it's women or whether it's friends or whether it's yeah. whoever it is. It's like, well, people are either going to enhance your experience in your time on this planet, or they're going to detract from it, or they're going to be neutral. And I like to surround myself with people who enhance it and where it forces me to be a better person, a more interesting version of myself and helps along that journey. Because I think it's super tempting and easy to fall into the cycle where we surround ourselves with people that are convenient, either because of proximity or because we have some type of history with them. They can hold us back. We can hold them back. I try to reinterrogate relationships regularly and kind of reevaluate them, audit them. I agree. I don't think this is offensive, but I was wondering if there's anything lacking from your life. Yeah, I'd like to like laser in on that when there is. I mean, I feel like all the time, right? It's like what drives us. I love these negative emotions when we feel them because they cause change and, and action. Like if you think about a happiness meter, I try to avoid staying towards the extremes of either side of it. I like to say that I'm at about seven. I think a seven, six to seven is fairly optimum because if you're at a 10, you're not going to have any drive to do the things that you know you want to do. So I'm not sure if any immediate discontent comes to mind other than I want to do more. I want to see more. I want to kind of increase the velocity of interesting people I meet, of interesting activities and not have it span over a decade. I mean, a decade, yeah, I have that goal for it, but I'd love to try to compress as many of those experiences down into a year if possible. And sometimes I read books. I feel like every fucking book has the opposite view. It's about the advice thing, like contradictory advice. Mm -hmm. All the time. And then you have to like process it, synthesize it, like filter it and decide like, okay, this is what I actually believe. 
But sometimes I feel like it's like, just be content with your place and content with having your, your things and not having to have more of it. And then there's other times it's like, yeah, go explore life. Like this is what makes life worth living. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think about it kind of from a minimization of regret is that we don't really regret the choices that we made. We regret the things we didn't do. It's so easy to have an idea and dismiss it and come up with reasons not to do anything. Burning Man's a great example. I've gone three years. Have you been? Mm-mm. Okay, sure. You're on the record. Too. Maybe. Maybe. I've been like hesitant on it. Here's the thing. Here's what I found about Burning Man. This ties really well into what we were just talking about. Nobody will go to Burning Man unless they want to go unequivocally because it is such an inhospitable place and it kind of uses up four or five days even if you don't go the whole time. Nobody ends up there accidentally. I found that unless I was super deliberate about wanting to go, it wasn't going to occur. You find out a lot about the people that you go with in that type of hardship. This place, there is nothing living there. You see a bunch of dust. It's 110 degrees during the day or nearly, and it gets almost freezing cold at night. You have these storms of sand where you can't even breathe. Your cell phone doesn't work. You're in the absolute middle of nowhere. It destroys everything that you bring. It's arduous and it's interesting because of the people that you go with. Unless you decide beforehand you're going to do it, you won't go. Like I talk to people like, yeah, I'm going to go. That would be fun. This is what it was. They talk themselves out of it. They come up with a reason why they shouldn't go. And that turns into regret. I have a really good friend of mine who the night before Burning Man, I'm like, hey, you should come with. He's like, okay. And he goes on eBay and he buys way overpriced tickets last minute. And then he talks himself out right after he bought the ticket about, well, you know, I have this thing, I shouldn't go. I think he's done this like two or three times since where he buys the tickets and he doesn't go and he always regrets it. Why impose that regret on yourself? Just explore it, turn over the rock and see. Like, as you said, what, interrogate it? Interrogate it. Well, yeah. Savor like a fine wine. Well, I like that you, you actually said that, embrace your discontent, right? And then use that to learn for the future. I think it's interesting what glasses we're wearing to notice the themes we have in life. Hmm. So the glasses that I'm wearing in life now, the two major themes I'm, I'm noticing over and over and over again is that like, like a lot of the things you want to accomplish are going to take a long time. Mm. It doesn't mean it has to, but it just seems like the people that I'm admiring and the people that are creating things, I'm like, they're working in like 10, 20 year spans. And I'm like impatient about a one week span. Have you always been impatient or has a newly developed? Thing? No, I've always been impatient. And so I have to surround myself with patient people. I don't know. I think being impatient is a virtue. I don't, I, I don't necessarily fault it, but I just noticed that like what I'm admiring about other people is something I'm also kind of like, all right, how do I balance my need for like immediacy and getting things done right away? But also like a larger task, you're not going to build a boat in a week, mm-hmm. right? But you have to start with getting like the pieces and then probably selling it and all this other shit to actually invent and end up making a boat. And so it's just noticing that and then surrounding myself. Like, so I have Chad as my business partner because he's very patient, right? Uh-huh. And he can deal with something more stable long-term where I can come in and help out as needed. The second thing that I'm seeing kind of the Burning Man point. So it's like, be patient. But then the second thing is like, how are people iterating? And I think this is one of the key things, especially with comedians. I've been reading a lot of comedy books, like Steve Martin's bio and Jude Apatow. And one of the things that they all did was all the comedians worked for a very long time without being famous, like in the shittiest places, like India, not that Indians are bad, but Indian casinos and like retirement homes and hospitals. And like, they did a lot of them where like people didn't speak English. But what they did, what was really interesting is they kept iterating their material and improving it, improving it, improving it. So that when they finally, like, as it started hitting, when they went out to the Letterman show or when they had a, like an opportunity to do a bigger audience or a larger audience, it killed it because they kept trying to make things better. That's fascinating because you only, the first time you see a comedian is generally on one of those shows and you just assume that something happened that got them there. You don't, you don't see all of the work that they put into it. And it's kind of the same with your story, dude. Like, I think the title of this show would be like, how does John Arrow make his first billion? 
And I, don't, I see I the like first, it. right? Because there could be many more after that. But that it doesn't show the Expo Active or Fusion Pay or, you know, probably 30 other ones that you've experimented with. There's a lot to that for people to actually realize, like, oh shit, yeah, I got to go do it. I've got to, not that they have to fail. Like maybe your first one can be a home run. But generally in, in baseball, you know, you get three good bats out of 10 and you're like a star. It's kind of like, I don't know. I think those lessons are kind of like marinating with me. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, lo I love that. I'm going to try to be more patient too. I've noticed that I'm just so extreme on the impatience that I need to adopt some of that patience. I like being impatient. It's just like complimenting myself with people or ways of being patient. So like I do patient challenges. So like if I'm at a light and the person doesn't go, like we honk right away. We're like, fuck you, beep. <laughs> right. And so I do a patient challenge where I'm like, I count. I'm like, all right, you're going to count to three and, and give them the benefit of the doubt. Then you can honk. And then that's actually made me more patient. Or if I'm in line, we all do like grocery line, like optimization, right? Or airport line optimization. Sometimes I'll intentionally just be in the longer line. And then it's very hard not to be like, well, I got to go over there or let me see if I can move this. And I'm not, not perfect at it. I mean, it's hard to say perfect, but it's like, yeah, I work harder at trying to be like, okay, let me, I don't want to lose my impatience because I think it's a strength of mine, but also it's like, let me see if I can balance it up maybe a little bit. I love that embracing what you're you're great at too, because it's so easy to try to put ammo behind things that you're not great at. And totally, it's easier, right? I mean, it's like if you had an unfair coin. Have you heard this, this <laughs> no, thing, I like story it problem? I already like it. <laughs> Imagine you have an unfair coin that comes up heads fifty five percent of the times and tails forty five percent of the time. Okay, you got twenty dollars. Okay, you can make any bets that you want, but if you run out of money, you're done. You never get to play with that fair coin again. Okay. What bet would you make? Han, so I can bet as many times as I want. Unless you're out of money. So you basically double your money, right? If you, if you call the right direction. So I guess the question is, what is the bet? What side do you bet? And what's the amount of the bet? Would you just bet a dollar until you like win? Or yeah, I think a small amount's good. I mean, I'd probably bet like 10 cents until I got up. Because I know what statistically I would... Over the long term, whatever. Yeah, you just don't want to blow up and lose that money. Because you should be able to get to a trillion dollars this way. If you know that unequivocally, really quickly. Oh, that's interesting. Right. So I think going back to the whole failure thing. The cost of the failures is, is super small with these businesses. Like worst case scenario, you know, you're out that time and that principle, but you had, you could have made it hundred million dollars off that company. What other bet can you take? Like you go to a casino, there's no bet like that. And so I think like what you have with the things that you're good at, that's an unfair coin. Yes. And so it's all about just maximizing and playing always heads or whatever it is and betting small enough increments that you don't kind of, you know, exceed risk tolerances. What is the challenge that everyone can go do today? If everyone wants to go on an adventure for themselves. Ooh, I like that. An adventure for themselves. Well, okay. You can be anywhere on this planet in 18 hours, right? That's insane to me. Never realized that. The furthest place you can go basically is like Hyderabad, India. Go there. I've been there before. And you can get there in 18 and a half hours. Get on a flight from Houston, take Emirates. It's like you buy, you know, whatever. I don't know what it is. It's reasonable though. You can get a ticket there. So do you think everyone should just go on a, get a plane and just go somewhere? Yeah. The ideas that come out of that, if you're stuck, change your surroundings, change your people, change your food, change the languages you hear, structures you see, the weather that you feel, right? That's going to cause you to have a new mental state. It's so cheap. I mean, you could basically probably buy a ticket to anywhere in the world for less than a thousand dollars, which is also crazy to think about. We live in an amazing age. That's like teleportation and time travel and psychiatry and you know, one sub thousand dollar ticket. <laughs> Do that. All right. So go fly somewhere today. John Arrow. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did listening to it and editing it time and time again. As always, give me a ton of feedback about the shows. I love hearing from you. It's at Noah Kagan or email me noah at sumo.com about what you thought of the show. 
Next up, if you like the episode, go text one friend that you love him. Just seriously, just go say, yo, let's have some lemonade. I miss you, dog. Number three, give John some love at mutualmobile.com. John Arrow, one of my good friends, super excited to share his story and learn a lot of new things myself. Number four, have a delightful day. Are you a Coke or Pepsi person? Do people still drink soda? <laughs>